0: Hi, and welcome to the Thinking Jewish podcast, where we share meaningful and relevant Jewish content. Tune in as we explore relevant ideas. This podcast will give you a new perspective and understanding of living Jewish. Hi, Rabbi Yosef Shapira. It's been a long time since we were in Israel together. We uh, We spent, I remember that, Young fresh face coming all the way from from <laughs> Israel from you UNY, no, you You were, in y, you were NYU, doing a degree before you came. I was not in
1: YU. I was doing my degree in Israel and then went back home to Baltimore and then came back to England. Not right. England to meet people from England in Israel at the Jerusalem Colo. Right. So you really wanted to meet the British. That's what you really wanted. <laughs> it's not it's not a joke, but until I went to the Jerusalem Colo, the only British person I knew was the man who had just married my sister-in-law Oh wow son of newman so uh-huh. until then, i didn't know anyone british so then i got married met my brother-in-law and then i was surrounded by british jews in the jerusalem Colony. And,
0: and did we uh, did the english live up to your expectations <clears throat>
1: oh boy did they live up to it!
0: <laughs> <laughs> go on, give us one little anecdote
1: <laughs> the the one thing that that was that i'll never forget was that when I was grading the tests um, throughout the program. So there was one British guy and I don't think you'll know who it is. And if he listens to this, I think he'd get a, jo- a crack out of it. But um, he would get upset at me that he didn't get a lower grade on his test because he said in England, if if you get a 97 on a test, your parents assume the test was too easy. No one gets ninety-sevens <laughs> in England. So he actually came to me and said, can I lower his grade?" So is more realistic? It's a true story.
0: You're not going to hear from my parents say, wow, that was awesome. They're just going to say, <laughs> oh, that, that was good. That was good. Yeah, so that was,
1: that was one of the more, more British moments. Jerusalem Cola <laughs> for me. Wow. Okay, so we're, we're, here, we're here to talk about, about
0: your, your book that you recently have published together with the other, other press. Um, but before we, before we get there, tell us a bit about what you actually do now.
1: Okay, great. So first of all, it's an honor to be here. Thank you, Rabbi Geffen, for having me. Um, when I left the Jerusalem Kolal I took my first position, which I'm very fortunate to say is still my position, about six years later, running the Brookhaven Kolal. So the Atlanta Scholars Kolal is based in Atlanta, Southeast America, where it's nice and hot. And they already ran a pretty big operation. There were about 15 rabbis on staff servicing different areas of Atlanta. So I started a brand new chapter in an area called Brookhaven. Beautiful, beautiful area. And in addition to that, I started their first ever young professionals foray, I guess you'd say. So until then, historically, they worked with families. It was really long-term education. They would learn, start with the family when they were young, and they would just continue learning with them really for the rest of their life and hoping it would develop into those families being inspired and maintaining their connection to Judaism. <clears throat> but now. I started this young professionals division in addition to that. So I work with families, but I also have the bulk of my time is spent working. We work with about 400 young professionals locally. Wow, wow, that's truly amazing. I'm saying you both don't come from Atlanta, do you? No, so my wife's from New York, I'm from Baltimore. We came purely for this job and thank God we've never looked back. We've loved every minute of it. We started with zero and now we start, we work with about 700 people trying to just teach and inspire and keep them connected to their Judaism. Wow, that,
0: that's really special. So, so you bought a book um, again, this is coming out in England or arrive a bit after America, a bit after it's arrived in America, it's called in it together, a candid view on infertility, a personal journey. Um, so one can assume what the journey is about, but so tell us, tell us a bit about why you, why you wanted to write this book.
1: Okay, great question. So yeah, first of all, this is the book for anyone who, who hasn't heard of it, In It Together, Candid View of Infertility, Personal Journey. And the reason I wrote the book is because when we went through this journey, we were basically at a point where throughout this journey, for anyone who's been there, I'm sure understands, we felt very alone. We felt like there was no one else who was in this journey with us. Who else can we talk to about it? And the interesting thing is that I searched for books. I tried finding books about the topic and there really are no books about it. There is one book called The Third Key. Um, it is an extremely technical book for anyone who's read it. I'm sure you're, you understand what I mean. It's about 700 pages long and about 500 pages of it are probably medical terms. So I still read that book because I was desperate for anything, trying to, to find anything that could provide some level of understanding what our journey was gonna look like, what was gonna happen. But at the end of the day, even when I had this manuscript, we still struggled with the idea of, do we want to really make this so public? It's obviously a, a private thing, and it was a big struggle. But what happened was an incredible thing. Should I share the incredible thing now, Rabbi Gaffin, or should we wait until
0: Please do. Please <clears throat>
1: okay, so the, what happened during our journey, and, and I'm happy to break it down further as we go along. But the basic storyline, what happened was we moved to Atlanta. We had already been in Israel trying for about a year. So we had been undergoing treatment for about a year in Israel. And unfortunately, because Israel is a socialized medical system, which I think England is as well, right? Yeah. yeah. It's similar. So, yes. I don't know how it works in England with infertility, but in Israel the government tries to drag their feet to not have to provide IVF for their patients because IVF costs tens of thousands of dollars. So if the government's paying for it, they're obviously gonna to try to make that the, really the last, last resort. So we had been through this journey in Israel, which was about 10 months. And of course they refused to do IVF because let's try other things that were far less effective, didn't work for us. But when we moved to America, I called one of the clinics here And I was talking to the doctor and I said, listen, we actually would like to have multiples. We would love to have twins or triplets. We'd love that. And I'm even willing to sign any waivers that come along with any risks or medical things that could come up. Can you help us do that? And the doctor said to me, how old's your wife? And at the time, I think she was 23 or 24. And I told her- This is after you'd left. This is after, Uh, we moved in Atlanta. We moved to Atlanta at the time. And the doctor said, your wife is 23, and you think you're having twins with me? And he started to laugh. And I was like, doctor, what, what are you laughing about? And he said the following words. He said, if you want to have twins, you better find a different clinic. Because if you're with me, there's no way you're having twins. And he went on to explain. He said, until you're 30, until a woman's 30, it's not worth the risk. Multiple pregnancy can lead to all sorts of complications, Anyways, I was unhappy with that, called my Revy, Revy like Berkowitz, and I said, Revy, what should I do? Ray Berkowitz had been all four asking for multiples. He said that that's reasonable. So I told him that the doctor said this, and he said, listen, very wisely, he said, go ahead with this doctor. If you become pregnant with one, you're not gonna be upset. Okay, good, we're pregnant, thank you. And if not, you can always switch to a different doctor later who may be willing to try twins. Anyways, long story short, we went through that process, which was a detailed process, but at the end of the day, he still refused to put in more than one embryo. He put in one and it split. And we had identical twin boys. Wow. And the amazing lesson we see is that you can have doctors tell you, listen, they're in so much control. Anyone who knows IVF, they are literally controlling every aspect of what's going on in your life. And they could be so sure you use me, you're having one baby. But if God says you're having more than one, there's nothing they can do about it. And even the doctor himself was blown away that he said to us, you want one, find another doctor. He put in one. Hashem wow. said, we're having two. We had identical twin boys. And that's really what pushed me to actually put the book out and say, you know what, let's be there for others. Well,
0: so why, why was that what pushed you?
1: Because that's- I felt I was so grateful and I, we felt so motivated and inspired by how clearly mm-hmm. Hashem showed us that he was part of our journey. Mm-hmm. that we said, we want to be part of others' journeys. We don't want others to feel like they're lacking resources. And I basically wrote the book that I wish would have been available when we were going through infertility treatment.
0: So you had you had the whole way along uh, a Rebbe who advised you, you were happy to speak to him, it was-
1: Yes, Rebbe Berkowitz was amazing. Um, there are other rabbinim that I'm close with as well. It's not always easy to rely on reaching a Rebbe in a different time zone. So um, there is a rabbi in Chicago, or Shmuel I, who I'm very close with. Right. Um, his name is actually on the front cover of the book. He, his quote says, this book is truly a must-read for every single Jew. Um, and he is someone who I can reach at all time zones because he's in a much more similar time zone than I am. But yes, throughout it, I was in touch with Rabbanim, post-Kim and There are Shilas that come up on sometimes an hourly basis.
0: Right. Um, so, what did you find challenging about writing a book? What do you even, I can even ask towards the future, do you think it's going to be challenging with other people? Yeah, not- that's a good
1: question. So, so, when I first wrote the manuscript, so writing the manuscript was very simple because I knew the pain, and I knew the experiences. It's not the type of thing you forget. So, um, it was pretty easy to put pen to paper and just write out the whole manuscript. But when I finished it, the biggest challenge we had was, are we going to publish it with our name on it or with a fake name? And we went back and forth with this for about three months. Um, there were some rabbanim who said, listen, it's, it's something you should be careful with because you never know what's going to be. If someone might say, oh, I don't know if, uh, about that family, They their children are from IVF, which is a concern, it's something that we thought about for a while, but on the flip side, if the purpose of the book is to try to sort of put a dent in that stigma about trying to get people to be more comfortable talking about their infertility struggles. So hiding behind a fake name doesn't exactly make that point. So went back and forth, spoke to multiple rabbinim, and in the end decided that although, yes, there is always the risk that there may be some things that come back to, to bite us. But at the end of the day, with the rough of many, many big gedolim, we decided to put our name on it to show people that it's, we're still the same regular people before we before you knew our journey. And now we've been through. We don't think it's changed us. Maybe it's changed us for the better. We obviously have had many, many experiences through it that were challenging and had different um, benefits and detriments come out of it. <clears throat> but the bottom line is that we're not afraid to walk around proudly knowing that, yes, we may have brought children into this world in a less natural way than others.
0: Right. Um, you just mentioned that you know there were there were moments in the in the journey and you sort of saying that that you've come out better and you know book definitely is one of those things that made you come out better how how did you get through the hard times you know i'm sure that's a good the, question the journey, so,
1: downs. so first of all it's crucial for anyone going through this to realize that everyone processes trauma differently so step one to your answer is the person has to recognize it's trauma I've had many, many times. So one thing it's important to note about me that in addition to my own journey, I'm also the rabbi of a community. So I'm constantly meeting with congregants who are going through treatment, starting treatment, middle of treatment. So I have a unique vantage point where it's not just my personal journey, but it's also witnessing how others deal with it. And whenever my wife and I see a couple in our orbit who seems almost like too upbeat During their trauma or during their treatment, we always know it's gonna end poorly because when you ask a couple, hey, are you you guys okay? Like you're going through infertility treatment and they say, yeah, we're doing great. This is gonna be amazing. We're gonna be parents soon. So it's nice to be optimistic, but anyone who's been through this journey knows that it's almost unheard of for it to go smoothly. There's so many details. In fact, one of the, I, I think when we were in the Jerusalem Cola together, one of the um the Friday one of the Friday programs they um they did was a, a program about I think it was about Tahara in general about the general the laws of family purity. All right, now. And I think one yeah and I think one of the one of the slides they showed was that the fact that a woman can become pregnant without God in the picture like just from a scientific perspective is so unlikely because of the amount of things that have to happen. So Imagine when you take the natural way Hashem created out of the picture, there's just so many bumps and so many things that go wrong. And I mean, obviously I wrote our personal journey, even in our our journey, just one couple. There were times that everything was lined up perfectly. We had everything arranged and then boom, slight thing off, scrap the whole thing. All 30 days start again, all new medication, all new bills, everything again. So a couple has to realize that it's not, fun and games. It's a trauma. Going through infertility is a real trauma. Um, In the book, I've quoted statistics they have where it's comparable to diagnosis of cancer, of heart disease. There's all sorts of studies that equate it at the level of severity at such a severe level. So that's step number one. Part of getting through it is recognizing that it's a real trauma. The second step is that a person has to realize when dealing with trauma, everybody processes trauma differently. It's even within one couple, my wife and I process things very differently. And it took us some time to figure that out. It's often going to be the first major trauma a married couple deals with, because usually within a year or two of their marriage, they start having to deal with these types of things if there's an issue. And fortunately, most of us in the from world, most of us in the Jewish world at large, we're pretty spoiled. We have pretty good lives. We tend to have what we need. And sometimes it is really the biggest trauma we've ever de- dealt with. And sometimes it takes time just to see how you process, how your spouse processes. But <clears throat> once you understand how each of you process it, the decision then is, are we gonna use this to help each other or is this gonna be what tears us apart? And I'll just answer what, um, to finally conclude answering what your question, there was a very, very interesting Danish study that was done with couples that have been through infertility. And I forgot the exact statistic, although it is in the book somewhere. It said something along the lines of that maybe um, two out of three couples or something really scary, two out of three couples got divorced because of infertility out of, it was the study of like 450 couples, but one out of every four said that it was the most important part of their entire marriage. And the point that I take from that is that it's really in your hands as a couple. You can either take an opportunity and use it to create such a powerful relationship between a person and their spouse, or it can really tear you apart if you don't handle it properly. Does that answer the question?
0: So just as a follow-up to that question, You know, sometimes people can go through a a really big challenge and it can rock their boat in their, in their faith. And I'd like to know, you know, if it's okay to ask, um, as a, as I guess, as a rabbi or as someone who, who practices religion, how did you, how did it help or how did it, how did it affect you in this journey?
1: Excellent question. So clearly for my wife and I, the answer is that without our belief in God, I don't know if he would have made it through. Because at the end of the day, uh, a trauma like this is so difficult, as we mentioned, and there's so many different moving pieces as to how to process it. But in addition, you always have the question, why am I suffering like this? And being part of a, a religion and part of a group of people that recognize that even though I may not know the specific answer, but I'm confident that there is a reason there I'm confident that God has given this to us because of a specific reason, is an incredibly powerful tool in our toolkit to be able to get through things. And amazingly, in our journey, at the end, we consider ourselves fortunate to be able to say that now we know why Hashem did it, because while we still ended up having X amount of children in in the first few years, because having twins obviously speeds up the process, Uh We also, though, were able to put so much energy into our work and outreach before we had the twins, because at the time we had a child, we had had a child before this in Israel, and with one child and two parents, you're able to accomplish a lot in an outreach community. If we would have had more children, I don't know if we would have been able to make the impact we made in this community. Wow. So being able uh, to look back and say, you know what, now we can understand why Hashem, why God did this to us is a very rewarding thing that we can take from our challenge. Wow. That's to be able to look back and say, that's that's
0: why it happened, that's uh that takes incredible courage.
1: I don't know, it's true. So that's what we that's what we think. That's how you feel.
0: (laughs) Wow. Wow. So just as someone who's who's asking the questions. You know, we—you um, were surrounded by friends. You were surrounded by family. Um, so I think there's two parts of the question. Again, at what point to the family did you tell your family? What did? Um, and I guess as as friends who are close to you, what what was helpful? What wasn't helpful? And what things along the way from those concentric circles of people helped you on your journey?
1: Yeah, definitely. Excellent questions. So as far as family everyone has to know their family because with even within our family, we're just two people with our siblings and our parents and our grandparents. There were some people we told towards the beginning and there are some people I don't think we ever told because there were some people we knew we could rely on for support. So they'll find out.
0: They'll find out through the podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah. If they're living in London somewhere, they might hear about this, but um the point is that some people we knew would be able to be supportive and some people we knew just wouldn't be able to. So instead of su- subjecting ourselves to insensitive comments, we said, why do that? And I see this constantly with others as well, that they are too open with people and then they, they really regret it. Because when you tell people about this journey, so you're opening yourself up to A, whatever the response is, which likely is not going to be a wise one, unless unless their background's in reproductive medicine, which is not common. But um, usually their comments will be either, a great comment is, I'm so sorry. Great, you haven't said anything wrong yet. But it's sometimes followed by something like, oh, did you try um, eating healthier? And like, (sighs) eating healthier? That's, I don't know why you're suggesting it. Did I do something wrong? Because a lot of times when someone suggests something, it usually means that what you've done has caused the problem, and you can fix the problem, which, number one, is almost always wrong medically, at least in this field. It's rare that eating too much is going to have any impact on a person's child. We all know people who are very overweight and very underweight who have children naturally. But that's one point is that it's usually not true, and then it's just like, what are you, what are you trying to say? but the other thing is that subliminally it's or subconsciously it gives over the impression that you the couple who's infertile are at fault you could do something about it which brings in terrible feelings of discomfort um, being judged um guilt anger guilt shame all these things so definitely you have to be careful who you share with but um For those on the receiving end, I always say do not offer any tips that you think will help someone become pregnant because I can guarantee that anyone going through treatment has a doctor and I guarantee that doctor knows more than the average person. This is not the type of thing that's like a pediatric medicine where if a kid has a cold, should they take uh, Tylenol or Motrin where, okay, some doctors say, it's not that type of thing. You're, You're This is the type of medicine that is so specific the drugs that a person takes you've never heard of other than going through these treatments. They're they're not even oral pills. They're all injects, injections because of how specific and how regimented they are. So I always say, show you care, show you're supportive, don't offer anything that's going to help them have children. And you could, and so, I mean, there's an interesting thing. One thing I found interesting that we appreciated, but others really disliked. Um, we appreciated when people would give us a brothel. Like, um, we're so sorry, you should be zofa to have children soon. Some people, I find, despise it. What do you mean? Do you think I need your brafas? What do you think Because you have children, you're better than me? So it's a touchy thing. We, we personally did not feel that way. But I know people that I've worked with that do feel that way. So the safest... People, people that didn't best- know
0: about your situation, <clears throat> um, was there ever comments that people who are totally unaware might just by mistake say, you'll feel that, I can't believe they said that, do they not
1: know, maybe we are struggling? Yeah, I mean, that's like a a daily issue. Almost, I mean, almost daily. It's really, really a crazy thing. But um, it's somewhat complicated because in my role, because I am in the rabbinic field, so I am expected to be in a position where people can tell me anything. But um, sometimes people would just ask me point blank. Like, um, oh, are you guys planning on having more children? Like, it's been like three years since your last. Um, that was something that I would get it was a little strange comment. And, and as I got, would you answer that? as I got more courageous, I actually would tell them, well, actually we, we hope that our treatment works, which is not so nice of me because <laughs> it, doesn't, it makes them feel very uncomfortable. We can add to but that. at the same time, hopefully it spares the next person because it's, mm. it's extremely uncomfortable when someone asks you, when are you having another child and you're literally in the middle of going through treatment? Wow. So, and I think people need to learn to be more sensitive about that in general. Um, besides the fact that it's it's a little bit of a private question in general, even someone who's not struggling with treatments. It's really not for other people to be asking about people's family planning. Yeah. But um, but another thing is that is that people would make comments about how difficult it is having children. That was something that drove my wife and I nuts. Like someone would come over to us and say, oh, I'm so tired. My kid woke me up last night. Or, like, do you know what we would do to have a kid wake us up in the middle of the night? I mean, we'd spend tens of thousands of dollars and you're nervous because you're a little tired. So those were all things. But again, the process also helped my wife and I grow as people and learn that, you know what, sometimes we have to realize maybe maybe we do have to be there for them, even though it sounds insensitive. Maybe, you know what, that is our job, that even though we're dealing with what we consider of a larger magnitude, but we have to also be sensitive to the fact that, yeah, they're tired. So, I mean, everything throughout the process really was somewhat of eye-opening and also an opportunity for us to um, see what is meant for us to take out of this step in the process.
0: So obviously, obviously, when it comes to these these sorts of areas, there's huge questions that come up and there's obviously a lot of medical advice that needs to be asked. And at the same time, there'll be halachic uh, questions and Jewish law will come into this. And you, you'll be able to tell us more about this area. But I'm sure, you know, people will say sometimes, well, how will how will Jewish law, which was written thousands of years ago, two, three thousand years ago, have any relevance and that be able to guide you in such questions today? And... Um, I guess also how how does the process of asking these questions go?
1: Excellent. Okay, so this is obviously a very important question, and the bottom line is that although it sounds like this is all such new stuff, and how could it be there's there's a tower of viewpoints on this, the amazing thing is, and the more research I did throughout our journey and subsequently with helping others, is there's not a question that comes up that the post do not have an answer for. I mean, Shmuel, first I've called him with questions about things that I didn't even know existed. And keep in mind, I've been working in the infertility space nationally for about five years. And someone called me about probably about a year ago with a question about a condition I'd never heard of. Um, it's called MRKH, if anyone wants to look it up. It's a very, very sad condition. It's basically a woman is born without a uterus, which means that a person knows from their time they're born that their child is not going to be able to carry children. But the amazing thing is I called shmuel first and without even without without missing a beat, you just answer the child right away. Keep in mind that the statistics of this are so low that if I had to guess, there's probably less than less than 50 from, I don't even know, maybe less than 50 people who would ask a question to a rabbi that have this in the entire world. And still the post can know it because at the end of the day, <clears throat> the Torah really has the answer to anything that will come up. And I think this is actually one of the, possibly the greatest field of contemporary medicine that shows that that it's so state of the art, so sophisticated, and yet you can ask the big rabbanim, no hesitation, right away. They can tell you all the sources to talk about it explicitly. Um, One other very interesting thing that that Rushmore first taught me as I was starting to learn enough that I was able to start answering these types of questions is that a person has to be very careful that when these questions are asked, it's not the same way you ask a question about if your kitchen is kosher, where you just call up a rabbi, they give you an answer and you, you go home and do what it says. Rabbi <clears throat> first told me that one thing you have to be very careful about when you're answering these questions in the infertility space is you have to make sure the husband and wife are both there listening because a couple has to realize that the decisions of bringing children into the world and the significance of where that's gonna stand on the Jewish level, is so important to the foundation of the family as a whole that that doesn't belong being asked by just one member of the couple. So it's a very important thing to keep in mind when asking a question is that you and your spouse, whichever one's the one asking, have to be the same mind, same idea, same interest in asking those questions. <clears throat>
0: um- now now the book's being published, who do you say the book's written for? Is it people who are going through the journey or is it written for the
1: general public? Who, who do you expect to be your readership of this book? Yeah, so, so this was interesting. When I originally wrote the book, I had meant it to be for those going through the treatment and those who are associated with people going through the treatment. The parents, the siblings, because I know it's uncomfortable for all of them. All of our siblings at different points one we're like, oh my gosh, did we do this? Did we being sensitive?" At the end of the day, when people have a lot of children and they have a sibling who doesn't, it's very hard to not have conversations focused around children. And the alternative isn't any better when suddenly you walk into a room and everyone just suddenly stops talking. Right. like, oh, I wonder if they were talking about children. This isn't awkward. So <clears throat> the point is that so that was what was originally meant for to sort of figure out and help those going through it. And they're just interject.
0: Like, did you, did you <clears throat> tell people if they had done so at the time, now it in the book. So you can just like, they can have the book and see it for themselves. But during your journey, did you tell them were you like, actually that wasn't sensitive or you just had to like, No, it's
1: really, really, it's a, it's a tough juggle because there's, they, people who say things that are insensitive never mean it as nearly as seriously sure. Sure. as the amount of hurt that it causes. Sure. So when a person responds with their anger or their emotion, it, it is so painful for the person who had said the insulting comments to realize what they just did yeah. that it ends up causing more, more, I guess, division within the relationship than it does benefit. So there's a lot um, you had to swallow out yeah, definitely a lot we have to swallow. Um, sometimes we would later tell them, if it was, depending who the person was, if it was a, a random person we saw every three years, okay, let's just hopefully not see them for the next three years. If yeah. it was someone we're close with, then yeah, sometimes we needed to to say things or sometimes we would find someone else too. This didn't specifically happen, but theoretically, if a sibling was being insensitive multiple times, we could have had a parent tell them, by the way, just let them know that that whatever, we're going through treatments. There, there, I mean, there are ways to do it, but anyways, that's what originally the book was meant for. But when I sent the manuscript to Rabbi First, Rabbi Shmuel First in Chicago, he um, he called me back to tell me he was going to do it. And he said that the main reason I'm doing this uh-huh. is because there's, he, he tells me the following story that just happened to me. He said he's a rabbi in Chicago. Um, for anyone who doesn't know Rabbi Shmuel First, he, he deals with infertility trials on an almost hourly basis. So he gets maybe a thousand infertility childs a year. It's insane how many infertility childs he deals with. And he said there was a local family in Chicago that has been trying for years to have children, that have no children. And there was a wedding of one of the families who had a child when all these other couples got married and their first was getting married. So you can imagine this other couple's child was 20 years and they go to the wedding and the man is sat down with all his friends, these people he grew up with. And the guy sits at the wedding and he comes to Rabbi first after the wedding and he's, he's sobbing. And he said, I can't do this anymore. I can't go to weddings, I can't do this. The only thing the table talked about the entire time was their children. And Rebe first said that he couldn't believe that people so innocently, he didn't, again, he doesn't think they're doing it with intent to be mean, but so innoc- innocently, just don't realize how much pain people in infertility are going through. So he said that the biggest reason why this book should be published is for other people who do not have family members going through it, who do not have close friends, but on a daily basis, they bump into people. And instead of the first question being, oh, haven't seen you in 10 years, how many kids do you have? Maybe talk about something else because maybe they don't have kids. And maybe bringing that up that they've been childless for 10 years is gonna cause so much pain that it's not worth knowing the answer of whether or not they have children. So really the book at the end of the day is for, for everyone, unless you don't interact with people.
0: I think, I think what we're saying also mm-hmm. is it goes a lot more, it goes broader than just one specific specific challenge. Someone who's struggling in Shadokim and the people around them are just talking about the husbands and their families that's something to be aware of in, in terms of the sensitivity to the people around you in, in whatever sphere that some other person within that group might be struggling with.
1: Yes. A hundred percent.
0: Okay. Um, just one more, one or two more questions. Is there anything that you didn't put in the book? Is there anything that you are, that you would be happy to share over here, but you thought maybe that, <laughs> maybe that's not something for the book. Um, And why would you you keep out?
1: Yeah, so this is something that was very, very complicated throughout the book because at the end of the day, I wrote the book, but it's a journey that my wife and I were on together. So different parts of it, my wife considered too private and I didn't. And it's a very, very tough divide because again, if you remove something, so then you're sort of putting up that curtain again. Okay, we have to hide this. Infertility needs to be hidden, but at the same time, people have to be, know when to be private in your life. And talking about family planning and these things is a very private thing in the Jewish world. <clears throat> so ultimately, what we ended up doing, and we did obviously scrap a lot of things, and my wife is fully comfortable with the book as it is, but ultimately what we decided to do is any part of our journey that we thought would be beneficial for others to know about, that we put in the book. Anything that would not benefit people, we decided to hold out. And I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. The biggest example is interesting, actually, because both editors who went through the book asked me why I didn't put it in. So the question was, how they both wanted to know why we didn't put in how many embryos we retrieved during IVF. So just a very quick, brief recap in case anyone doesn't know what this means. During the process of IVF, the doctor's artificially stimulate a woman's body to produce more embryos, I'm sorry, more eggs than she would naturally produce. Naturally, a woman produces one egg every cycle. They try to get her to produce tons, ideally 10, 15, 20. However many they get from those, they then fertilize it outside the woman's body. And then they hope that of the ones that fertilize, they get enough cells that they are large enough that they can be implanted, okay? and. It varies tremendously. Some people get one, some people get 25. It really varies tremendously. So in the book, I did not write how many we got because we figured it's private. No one really needs to know how many embryos we have. And more importantly, it doesn't benefit anyone to know how many we got. So that was something we did not put in the book. Whereas other things, such as different treatments we went through which are very private, we did put that in the book that would be because there are people who will go through that mm-hmm. and knowing where it was painful, what we did in advance to try to help, what we could have done differently now that we know what we know, that we did put it. So that's really the answer. Whatever we thought would have benefit for others, we included whatever would not benefit them, but was just like, hey, I'm curious because I'm reading your story that we said, you know what, it's important to maintain levels of privacy still within this as well.
0: I'm looking forward for that book to be available in the UK. Um, I think it's already on the Amazon store and uh, you can pre-order on Amazon. We always like to finish off on a on a, I guess, a lighter note um, to what we've been talking about until now and everything that you said, uh, it's, we're so grateful for, and I'm sure to all our listeners, there's so much we can learn in terms of relating to those who are going through challenges and, and I'm sure there'll be people who are going through challenges themselves. that will be able to, continue the conversation with you i'll put your your email address in the description you can get in contact with you in full in full confidentiality um just like to ask one final question we like to ask all our guests on the show who who has had the biggest impact on your life and why
1: so you're going to love the answer to this because you know him And that is Uh Um, for anyone who remembers when um, when I left the call, I said over a story that I had not told anyone until then that I had been in grad school. I did my second level. I don't know. If, I forget what they they call it. Grad school in England, master's degree. It's good. Cool. Yeah, it's called a master's. Yeah. Okay, so I was doing my master's degree in finance and investment banking before my entire rabbinic career. Were you not going to be a rabbi? What was I was not going to be a rabbi. Never thought of being a rabbi. That's. We'll have to do a second podcast about that because I have three minutes left. So, anyways, was in. Um, master's program for investment banking. And I went to meet um, two of my good friends, Shlaimi Schwimmer and um, Moshe Temler. Shout out to those guys. Went to went to meet them. I don't know if they listened to the Manchester podcast, but they should be. And went to visit them. I'd never heard of Rebuseb Brookwoods in full disclosure. And walked in the room and he was in the middle of giving his famous hashkafa, his famous daily philosophy class that Rabbi Geffen still types up till today. And I sat down because I was walked in the middle of this, obviously, and I was blown away by it. And I started going every day. They kicked me out during show of them. You'll have to explain to your audience about that. And this is obviously I was single at the time. I was 20. And when I graduated the MBA, I said, I'm giving this all up and I'm coming back to this rabbi's program, the Jerusalem Colo, and I'm becoming a rabbi. And this is true. I only dated girls who were willing to go back to Israel and do the Jerusalem Colo three year program. Wow! So Rabbi Zelig Berkowitz really changed my entire life trajectory from finance, investment banker to rabbi and helping communities, and I've never looked back. And I, I really am incredibly, incredibly grateful for that impact that Roy Berkowitz had on me.
0: If there's one thing you take, if if there's like a, you know, what is it that you see in him that you really, you know. <clears throat> connect to what you see like wow that's that's why i connect
1: him as a rabbi you know there's many rabbis to choose from yeah no def- definitely that's an cl- easy one for me that is caring about other people until that point we throughout the yeshiva system we learned most everything is how can i be better how can i be better how can i be better and he taught that's not the question we have to ask it's how can i help others become better how can i help others become better and that was something that really really resonated with me wow
0: Truly really beautiful and meaningful, Um Rabbi Shapira, Rav Yosef, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. I know you're you're split between so many different projects. Whether it's young professionals, it's the KOLAR, it's your book and the launch of it across the country, ac- across the world. I, I really am so grateful for your time, and I'm sure all our listeners benefit hugely from that. And those who'd like to continue the conversation with you, um I will put the link in uh in the description, and also put the link so they can order your book on Amazon, if they. Choose to buy it.
1: Fantastic. So yes. I'm happy to talk to anyone, with any questions they have. Thank you. Thank you for your time as well.